Hi, and welcome to Second Rate Film School. I'm Andrew, and today we have a very special guest, Bill Oakley. Welcome, Bill. Hello, Andrew. It's great to be here. I'm delighted. Great to have you on. You know, been a longtime fan. Um, you have a career that's um, longer than my arm, if we were to print out. You know, producer on Simpsons, writer, um, Portlandia, etc. And today's main topic, Mission Hill, as my yes. background would be. Um, here, quarantining in Mission Hill. Everything seems a little more... <laughs> animated i suppose so um yeah today we're doing a commentary on episode nine unemployment part two or theor theory of the leisure ass original air date july 14th 2002 so you know who else to have a better conversation with than one of the creators and writers yes i'm excited so all right well we're gonna launch right into that so you know sync up with the countdown in a few seconds <laughs> all right so we're now starting with the episode so um first off i think the music in this you know we talked a little bit briefly off camera the music in the show is great um you know we'll have to look for some pirated copies to get all the original music but the theme song itself is still intact and very catchy yes this was a version of we actually had we had the group cake which we we're big fans of uh perform this song uh, which is basically, it's really similar, if not identical to their actual song, Italian Leather Sofa. Um, we had actually thought that they were going to make up something original, but then when they turned this in, we were like, this is fine. <laughs> and so we um, we used it and it's still, it's very catchy. It's kind of hummable, which is I think important for a TV theme song. And um, it, I think it's one of the signature elements of the show. Yeah, and the, you know, it, this is one of the most unique shows, even um, still now, twenty years later, um, let alone nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, it was a little too unique for nineteen ninety nine, which is why it was only on for two episodes, um, uh, and, or maybe three. Uh, so we've, in fact, also at the end of this, let's talk. We'll be talking about the spinoff that Josh and I are working on of of Mission Hill. Um, anyway, yes, this show was the absolute wrong show to be on broadcast television of any type, especially the WB network, which is where it was. And, and uh, maybe people, anybody under 30 probably doesn't even remember the existence of the WB network. But um, at the time they were delighted to have our show. Um, but by the time we had, uh, we had finished animating the show, they had decided they were the teenage girl network and it was all Buffy, Roswell, Angel, that kind of thing. And this show did not have a home on that network and it they aired uh, like two or three episodes to very low ratings and it immediately canceled it which is you know we put two years of work a very hard work into this thing um fortunately though adult swim was invented a few years later and they bought this for super cheap i'm sure <laughs> they bought all 13 episodes and aired them over and over and over again not just adult swim but also teletoon in canada yeah. um did the same thing and uh thus we built up an audience and this this crazy forgotten show has turned into a cult thing over the past 20 years yeah and that's how i originally uh, was viewing it on um adult swim you know that was uh, back in the early days when they were still doing like sea lab um space yeah. and all that so that's why i was a youngin and i was like well this is cartoons but they're saying like ass and like you know there's masturbation so like i wasn't i was like a little like oh, this is like what is it? should i be watching this um, <laughs> of course i watched it over and over again um you know and I think the great thing about this show is the way you guys like wrote it as a kid, I, you know, more um, was in tune with Kevin because, you know, I was a nerdy kid, but as I'm uh -huh. older now, I'm like, Oh yeah, this is clearly the Andy French show now. So it works right. on multiple levels across the years versus 
you know, love Futurama and The Simpsons and all that, but it's like, you know, it, I think you get more or less the same as a kid as you do as an adult in a lot of cases, where this, I think, can be crazy, and I can't wait to get older to see Gus and Wally, like what it's like, you know, <laughs> Yes. That's cool. I've never heard that perspective on it before, but I'm glad that it works on those those levels. Yeah. And, you know, having the same name as the one main character now, I can really connect with him. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I mean, this is, you know, the one two-parter you got. Obviously, the first part um, had um, Andy losing his job at the um, mattress store and all that. So a question I have with that is, I know you said in interviews, you know, Andy was going to continue losing his job or getting a new job every eight or so yeah. episodes. Um, would that have been the last we would have seen of Ron? Would he have ever come back or, you know, we cut the cord, you know, any coworkers in the background, they're just gone now? We would see Ron again, but he would not be necessarily working at the... Let's just say Waterbed World is gone. Yeah. However, Ron as a character would return. In fact, Ron will possibly return in the spinoff uh, as well. And he won't... He's not gone. But and as, same with the co-workers like Fextine and a number of those other characters that you probably didn't realize had names uh, at Waterbed World will appear in the world. But the general thing about this show was that we wanted time to move forward slowly. But... Uh, unlike the Simpsons, where everything is reset at the end of every episode, uh, we wanted this to gra- things to gradually change. And one of the things is that Andy, there was a plan basically for a you know should this <laughs> had the show been successful, there was a plan that basically by season eight or season nine, Andy would have finally achieved the success he had hoped for, and basically would have become like Matt Groening, and would have his own animated show and would be rich and living in Hollywood, and there would be definitely be downsides to that too. But he would have achieved his dream, and uh, he, he may be—he you know, may have had some regrets along the way. Uh, in any case, the plan was for him to change epi- change jobs about every three episodes. Okay. Which uh, I, I mean, sorry, did I say three? I mean, every eight episodes. So three times. This is back when there were twenty-two episode seasons of yeah. shows. But it would be based approximately three times per year. He would change jobs until season, you know, seven or eight, and he'd gradually get better jobs. He'd gradually have more success with his cartooning while being tempted, you know, to, to take other jobs or, you know, like, like he was tempted, tempted to take the strip club manager job in episode six, I think it was, he'd have other things along the way that would, you know, possibly derail his goals for a while and stuff. Um, anyway, this one was, this was the first of those transitions and the only one, well, actually, wait a minute, there was, in the, in the episodes that, let me take a step back here, there was also, there also are five episodes that were written and partially animated. I don't know if you knew that, but there yeah. the, the episodes, um, there were five more episodes because the network loved the show until they put it on the air and, and it got terrible ratings. So they were like, we want more scripts. So we wrote five more scripts um, uh, and we also and partially animated them. Like you can find on YouTube the animatic for one act of um, an episode and you can find a, a sort of a storyboarded table read for another one. Um, and you can read all the scripts online. But basically what happened is that Andy was kind of, he got this job in this episode and he was still in it by episode 18, but we had imagined that he would probably get a new job around episode 20, which would have been like the second, first or second episode of the next season. Should have, should that ever have arrived? Yeah. Yeah. And it's again, very creative. And you, you know, now with shows like Rick and Morty, you do see arcs and animation, but you know, you never really saw that in like these um, cartoons back in the day. You know, Homer always ended back at the you know um, power plant. You know, he would have his 
one-offs of, you know, his adventures doing, you know, something else kooky um, and all that. But, you know, it was very creative and, again, ahead of its time to see, like, oh, you know, we're changing. Water, waterbed world is, you know, gone. But, you know, like you said, the characters would be there, which is great because I loved Ron. I thought he was such a great character. And so yeah, he is really us. fun. Um, by the way, this was that line um, that Gus just had when he's like, boxcar in the Depression. That was the first time I realized how old they were. I just always pegged them as being, like, middle-aged. And then the, when you have this and the last episode, um, the Plan 9 um, pair. Yeah. I'm like, oh, they're, you know, they're a lot older than what they seem. I guess now looking at Gus or Wally, you could see a little bit, but funny how. Well, I, I think he's about it. 70. Uh, and, then, again, this will come up a great deal in the spinoff, uh, which is about them to some extent. Uh but yeah, that's that. That's true. There, it's kind of a multi-generational universe, uh, and I never really thought of it that way until you said it. But that's cool. Yeah. So in this episode, you'll see what happens is that Andy. I don't want to spoil the ending, but you know, basically, Andy does make this transition to a new job, courtesy mainly of Jim's intervention. Jim, his roommate, and part of what we thought was that. Very believable. Jim had a job because the, this is actually based on uh, one of Josh's friends who did, who was just like this and had this exact job back in the in the late '80s, where um, it really was a universe where like people didn't know people over forty didn't know the first thing about computers, and it was very it was very easy for a lot of younger people who did to really get kind of like pretty high paying, very responsible positions. Uh, because the old older guys didn't have any idea what was going on, um, and and furthermore, in this case, Andy had no idea that because I think it's very believable also that Andy had never asked. He somehow never knew what Jim was doing because he is a selfish <laughs> Gen Xer, and and Kevin, of course, you know, knows everything because he's he's uh, outgoing and also nosy. But yeah, that's like I, we thought it was funny and pretty believable that Andy. Had, didn't really know that Jim also because Jim isn't forthcoming. Jim says, ah, I do some stuff downtown. Like yeah. he's not, he doesn't talk about it. He doesn't brag. He doesn't take, he doesn't really think his job is anything like he does. He, this actually comes up to a great extent in the episodes that were not animated because there's at least two that are completely at the advertising agency. Um, and there's stories involving Jim's role there. And there's stories involving Jim's assistant, uh, Stacy, who we'll see it in just a few minutes here. Um, so yeah, it was a good, it was a very lucrative area, but like, you know, that's the thing about this. We felt that when he did, when Andy had these jobs, it was fun to take a real deep dive into a certain world for eight episodes. But by, you know, we felt like eight episodes was about enough to have gotten all the jokes we wanted out of the advertising agency or the waterbed store. Yeah. Yeah. And I, again, you know, it's just really ahead of its time with, um, because yeah, you're right. You know, you got the joke of the waterbed sort of like, okay, you know, the you know, couple who had the sex tape, you know, you know, trying to get the money yeah. back and all that, and, you know, you could get plenty of jokes, but you, you know, you were always keeping it fresh with this. So now we're completely switching gears from kind of like a scummy scumbag, you know, boss who's doing illegal shit to just like a corporate world where, people are failing upwards and yeah. you know, everything's just kind of like, you know, has no real, um, what's the word, you know, like no, no real consequence to it that there's, you know, just kind of like, uh, you know, we don't really don't know what we're selling here a hundred percent, but you know, like we know what we're doing type, you know, in right. between. Well, this place, I believe the Enermanitano HGE creative is a, a pretty prominent advertising agency. Yeah. 
Um, and it's like it's the reason we had that name is because every advertising agency at least then had a tortured name that was the result of like three mergers and like TW, TBWA, you know, whatever. There's like advertising agencies had really tortured names due to all the mergers. So that was the, the joke such as it was with that name. Uh, but the other thing that people don't realize and think about this, especially anyone under 40 wouldn't realize, is that this is an homage to the TV show 30 something. In fact, this is the same actor. That's the whole point of this thing is that uh, 30 something has vanished from the popular consciousness. But it was really popular and award winning acclaimed show in the late 80s, early 90s. That was a drama about, you know, this group of families and friends. And the two main guys worked at an advertising agency. For, they first they started their own advertising agency, which went broke. And then they went to work at an advertising agency, which is basically this one, run by the same guy. And the character was named Miles Drentel. And he was a cryptic weirdo who was thought to be a genius in the world of advertising and also so kind of a really mean boss. And we love that character so much that we just basically totally took him for this. And we got the same actor, David Clennon, to play the same role. Because we thought it would be funny for Andy and Jim to have to deal with that character. And again, it's I'm one of the commentaries or interview I've, I've digested a lot of Mission Hill in the past like two weeks preparing for this. Um, you said that like, or one of you guys said that the humor with this show is not always like really in your face. It's very observational, and you have to like watch it two or three times to get a lot. And that's like a joke that's like is just perfect. That's like you know you if you don't get it like if you've never watched Thirty Something, it's still like funny. The characters. An interesting character and all that but you know it adds an extra layer if you do notice it and it's the same thing with the um agency name the first couple times i watched it, i never paid attention but then seeing that show i'm like oh it barely fits on the wall the name is so big now yeah I, th and those are some like that that was part of the point of this show is we did not want to do a gag fest um you know although the gag fest we probably would have been much more successful with a gag fest a la family guy you know like yeah. this show was supposed to be it was inspired by the whole kind of alternative comic book world of the time the, the comic books like Eight Ball and Hate Buddy Bradley and those things. And so they were with a realistic, observational, character driven comedy with jokes, you know, with gags here and there. But it wasn't supposed to be like a gag fest. Um, it was supposed to be kind of an involving, emotional thing with, with observational humor, character comedy, and some, and some gags, of course. And again, you know, the humor you know worked great when I was a little kid because I'm like, ah, oh, you know, there's a lot of you know obvious jokes and all that. And then as I've gotten older, it's like, yeah, you know, that scene like in the elevator as I'm now yeah. in my mid to late twenties, like, oh god, this is painfully. Yeah, that, that people have buying their house, <laughs> people buying a house and stuff. That I think the thing of also that we didn't, we really didn't realize was how what a tiny populate, what a tiny segment of America would appreciate this show. I think we thought that this would be a show that would we naively thought that it would appeal to a wide audience where in fact it actually only appeals. Most people in America have no idea what the hell we're talking about in this show. And that is one of the reasons, like even the, a number, like this show got a couple of absolutely terrific reviews. Like a variety said it was the best new comedy of the year. However, most of the TV critic reviews were set with terrible, including entertainment weekly, which said it was awful, which really made me mad. And I canceled my subscription and have never renewed it 20 years later. Um, and like, I think it was just people really, people really did not, I don't know how anybody could say this show was awful at the very least it's yeah. fine, you know, but like that, uh, there's such a radical disconnect between what we thought people would, the general public would like and what they liked. Um, it blew my mind. So I, it's very rewarding. It took forever <laughs> for this show to build up a following 
but it did happen. Yeah, and again, just like you know, certain, just like it, I, I refer to it as the smart people show that the the cool smart <laughs> people like it. So that's why I therefore like it. But you know, it's just like you know, crammed with so many details. Like you know, like Jim's wearing like talk, you know, they're talking about being professional as Jim's like wearing clothes that granted we've never seen him wear before, but it's a great joke of just like he's wearing you know a shirt that's a slutty and you know marijuana leaves on. Yes, I love. And by the way, you can buy that shirt. We have we have there's a Mission Hill store. If you just Google Mission Hill merchandise or you even do it on Amazon, it's actually on Spreadshirt. But we have a number of, um, you know, we have some T-shirts, mugs, things like that. It's one of those, you know, Cafe Press type things. Uh, and there is a slutty shirt. That exact shirt that Jim is wearing is available for sale. I know what I'm getting for my birthday this year. But, um, it, yeah, you know, and this is great, you know, now how he's trying to, get, like, you know, he's really unsure who to get his references. And I know as, you know, like, you know, when I was in my early 20s, like, trying to, like, apply for jobs, like, who the hell do I put as a reference that this is a very real problem for people starting out? And, you know, it's, you know, this great dynamic between Gus and Wally as Wally's, like, trying to lie for him. And Gus, we're finding out, is just, like, a very staunch moralist who's like, no, Yes, I love this. This was all the creation of Aaron. I would say this script was written by Aaron Ehas who was an incredibly talented, very valuable writer on this show and other shows that we worked on him with. But I think he was the one who kind of gave this dimension to Gus about like lying is wrong hearted, which I, you know, I still say like every couple of days. Uh, and, and this is, and, and in fact, the texture and the depth that Gus and Wally get in this episode is part of what's going to fuel the spinoff. There you go. And I just love this little bit of him putting the styrofoam to like replace it. Yeah. Too. Me too. I love this. And the scene with Brian Beardley. Oh my God. It's so believable. Yeah. And that was a real, that was a real drink that was available by the way at seven 11 briefly, which was the double Slurpee that looked oh. crazy. <laughs> I wasn't sure if that was like a um, joke or not, but it worked, you know? No, it's yeah. real. It was real at the time. So this guy is like so typical of um, not only many corporate environments, but also specifically advertising. <laughs> And because he uses the phrase like the ad game vet, the ad game vet came back in that episode of the, about the advertising agency, which I told you about, which I think is episode 14, um, uh, which that one has so much like satire of the whole advertising world. Um, but yeah, the jaded <laughs> grumpiness of the Brian Burley character pays off at the end, obviously, when you see him get the boot. Yeah, and I cannot tell you how many job interviews I've gone on, and I've just been picturing the scene in my head, like it going as badly as it does for <laughs> poor Andy here. But um, I love yeah. this. This is one of my favorite scenes. That Gus, he doesn't want him to lie. He's so mad about the idea of Wally lying that it makes me laugh. And then Wally just breaks down. He can't pull it off. Yeah, it's great. And then you know Tom Kenny and obviously Nick Jameson are. The oh my God, they're so good. Yeah. It is definitely, you know, it was weird because at the time I was still a kid watching Spongebob that watching this be like, oh, wow, this is, you know, this is Spongebob. Wow. So. Yeah, he's Spongebob. The very first appearance, to my knowledge, of, and I think to Tom Kenny's knowledge, of the Spongebob voice is in episode five of Mission Hill. Yeah. It's the voice used by that guy. Um, the Ewok. Yes, right, right, right. I keep forgetting his name. Jimmy Briskin. Yeah. That's Spongebob's voice. And, and, yeah. and this was before Spongebob. Yeah. So it's very funny. I, obviously, it's a different voice, but I can I've gotten to enough of the animation like voice acting ear that I'm like, okay, I can hear Tom Kenny in there. So it was yeah, really yeah, interesting because like, oh, SpongeBob is saying stuff that I, I shouldn't hear usually. I love Gus blushing there. Yeah. 
I also just love it. You were actually, um, even though the baby's not in here, um, it's something I've noticed. You guys were a little ahead of the curve on baby nameless um, being raised kind of genderless. That that um, I don't think that was nearly as big of a thing in the 90s as it is um, now that you hear about. So you were ahead No, of Gus and Wally were very ahead of their time uh, politically. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Gus and Wally and Carlos and Natalie is what I meant to say. Yeah. And it's very interesting. And again, you know, I feel like, you know, as we continue on, like as I continue into adulthood and like early you know marriage and all i could see you know like okay you know see you know their side is being like okay this is more you know in tune obviously they didn't get nearly as many episodes but um you know hey maybe in the spinoff we'll get more this i love this shot this is such a good thing and we were like i remember telling the composer expire i want the saddest music you've ever composed over this shot and there is it's such tragic music <laughs> and poor data this is so funny. I just love Dave, Dave Talbot. Does is such a nice guy, and it's so, it's so heartbreaking. For it's heartbreaking for Jim because he's no, he's going to fuck over Dave Talbot, who doesn't deserve this. Yeah, it's one of the most mean spirited slash heartwarming because he's doing it all for his friend. So it's a yeah conflicting. Emotion. So long, but Dave Talbot. He's yeah. he's keeping his chin up though. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's great. And I also, um, we um, have passed by it, but, you know, Andy's real incentive to finally get a job is when his two fell out. And I feel like that's a very, you know, yeah. thing. Like, yeah, I yeah. I noticed with a lot of my um, art school, you know, film student friends that a lot of us have, you know, kind of like gone into more corporate jobs as we're like, oh, healthcare is a thing. And it's like, it's one of these things where it's a scare where you're like, oh, I'm not going to stay young and healthy for Yeah, that's yeah. That's what is a good incentive for him. That's what, that's Andy's trigger is his tooth falling out down the drain. I love that. I just also love that the boss, that Jim has this weird role that the boss thinks that everything that Jim says is absolute genius. And so he gets this incredible treatment, um, which also comes back to play in that episode 15 or whatever it was. Yeah. Again, it's great, you know, and, you know, you're right. It um, was definitely a, you know, perfect timing with that, with the older people having no idea with computers at all. And then yeah. in a case of advertising, like, hey, you know, we want the young hip market. You're the young hip guy. Right, right. Space juice. That was yeah. the thing that was, we still use that as a metaphor for people wanting to hip their things up. Exactly. This is just great, you know, the contrast of all these terrible tools, but he's just so happy that he's going to have like a, you know, $14,000 tooth now. Yeah. I think it's a pretty relatable thing to anybody also because dental, you know, even if you get a job with health insurance, it often has crappy or no dental insurance. Yeah. And so like the sign having really nice, nicely taken care of uh, teeth with expensive things devoted to them is the sign of really being a, you know, a, a, a person who's, who's in the groove. Yeah, exactly. So, well, we've now reached the end of our episode. So um, stay tuned in a moment for our conversation. All right. Um, all right. So we're now back. You know, we've watched the episode, obviously, and now we're going to do a more general um, discussion about the show and Bill's career. In general. Great. So. All right. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, now series specific, you know, I'm touched on it. The great thing about this show is um, it worked on, you know, as I said, different levels as me watching as a kid with Kevin and like the nerdy stuff. And then, you know, as older with Andy, that it's pretty balanced between you know there's a couple episodes like the one we just watched where one of the brothers will not get a storyline at all that there's really no quote-unquote b plot to it that you know occasionally 
like um the masturbation pyro episode you know that's like you know kevin's show the right the sat one and then you know ones like this where this is definitively andy's show that you guys kept like a very good balance between the two main characters and then as well as giving good subplots to you know gus and wally yeah yeah we uh that was something that we learned on the simpsons honestly was just like it when we would put all the cards up on the board for all the stories that we had we'd always want to have like We'd make sure there was a certain number of Homer stories, a certain number of Lisa stories. Also one Itchy and Scratchy episode, one Sideshow Bob episode. You know, so we learned how to do that and basically just applied the same rules to Mission Hill. You know, that you want your your stars, your star characters to have a majority of the episodes, but you want to make sure every other character gets featured in a proportional uh, way to their value as, a, you know, a storytelling character. I think we, we composed the show, we made sure that each character had a friend, like, Part of developing a show of any type is to have a making sure that each character has their friends that they can talk to, you know, like so that you always have like, you know, when you have Kevin, it's not just Kevin talking to himself. It's him talking to George and Toby. You know, when you have Andy, it's not just Andy talking to himself. It's him talking to Gwen or or Jim. Um, And so like everybody has a group, has their own little group. And when the groups all come together, it's entertaining. And that it's also one of the things, you know, this is like one of the things that we also learned the Simpsons is like Homer would be talking to Barney or be talking to Lenny and Carl or be talking to Milhouse um, and Marge. That's one of the problems actually with Mar, both Marge and Lisa is that they don't really have any good friends. So it's hard for them. They always have to make the new friend. Like Lisa used to have Janie, but she sort of faded out <laughs> of existence, but Marge has never had a friend. So when you make these stories with Marge, it's hard for her to, it's harder to write those stories because you've got to concoct, who, who, who is she going through this journey with? You know, it's often Homer or Lisa or Bart, but she doesn't have any friends outside the house. And it's been a thing that people, you know, the writers of Simpsons are talking about for 30 years. They'll get around to it eventually, though. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's on the to-do list. And yeah, and actually, when college, I did a spec script for The Simpsons. And I'm like, you know, I made a person go, I'm like, it's going to be a Marge episode. And yeah, that was the thing. I'm like, oh yeah, this is hard to balance. They're, they are. And that's the, they always give the episodes to the new guys. The first year that we were there, all the episodes that they assigned us were Marge episodes. And so, you know, and they're hard to do uh, because you don't have that, you don't have those resources to draw on. Yeah, and I know, um, you know, getting a little head into The Simpsons, I mean, yeah, you did Marge and Chains and Marge gets um, a job, which are... Yeah, know, those are the two I'm talking episodes. about. Yeah. So, and, you know, it's tough, but, you know, you can create classic episodes with that. And, um, you know, it's just, you know, very interesting what to see, you know, what you can do with sometimes, you know, characters that don't get as much attention, you know, obviously. That's why those are so crazy. I mean, honestly, like our first drafts of both of those are not really very similar to what made it on the air because over through the course of the rewrites, they just kept um, removing the character stuff and putting in more insanity, which is why those episodes are the way they are. But they're very popular. So who am I to complain? Um, do you think Mission Hill would have done better if it were on a channel like Fox or even like MTV since they kept Daria and Beavis and Butthead on for so long? It might have done better on MTV. It definitely would have done better on cable. Absolutely. Yeah. But in those days, there that didn't really exist. Like MTV did have Daria. I think that was after Mission Hill, though. I could be wrong. No, um, it was a few years before it started, I believe, in 97. Oh, OK. So like I think that it's, in retrospect, yeah, MTV might have been the only existing place before Adult Swim, that where it could have possibly survived. I'm not sure, though. Yeah, because, you know, looking at, like, all, around this time, this is when, like, every other channel wanted their own Simpsons. That's when you were getting Duckman. That's when you were getting God the Devil and Bob. And 
with very few exceptions, they only you know would run one season because these studios would realize, oh, animation's expensive, and they would kind of get panicky of this isn't Simpsons level big immediately. Got That's it. why it couldn't be on cable because cable wouldn't pay for shows like that. Like Daria, although it's a classic and, and brilliant in many ways, and Beavis and Butthead are both very cheaply animated. I think, you know, they're, they're probably a show that costs like Mission Hill. It cost one point two million dollars an episode in 1999 dollars. Yeah. And I'm fairly sure that, that Beavis and Butthead and Daria cost about a third of that. Meme. Definitely, you know, wrong. Play. And then again, it goes with what we we're saying, you know, ahead of its time that I tell people like, listen, if you like Rick and Morty and BoJack Horseman, Bob Burgers, like Mission Hill is like, you know, godfather of that. Like, you know, they kicked it off. That's where you get like continuing storylines. That's where you get, you know a lot of observational humor and all that. So it's, you know, I'm very unfortunate that it happened to be a channel that didn't know what to do with you guys. It's yeah. Like trying yeah. to find themselves, you know, and that when I found out, cause again, I grew up with this on adult swim. When I found out this was on WB, I'm like the same channel with Dawson's Creek. Like you said, the same channel. Yeah. Those shows. Like, well, the thing about this, yeah. just to reiterate, we sold it to them before they became that we yeah. sold the show to them before they had any identity whatsoever. And then during the time that we were writing and animating this, which was about two years, they became the Teenage Girl Network, and which was not where this show belonged. Exactly. You know, it's, it's a shame, but, you know, it still, you know, holds up, you know, as a great classic. And, you know, as, you know we can now transition into um, potentially getting a spinoff. So what's that going to be like? Yes. Well, that once again, it relies on somebody being willing to buy it. Um, hopefully that will happen. Uh, Josh and I have been working on this for about a year and a half now. And uh, the show, it's basically, the show is called Gus and Wally. And it's essentially Mission Hill, but with more Gus and Wally. That's yeah. uh, because we like to write for Gus and Wally, especially that last broadcast episode, uh, uh, the Plan 9 from Mission Hill was one of our, fa possibly our favorites and, and many other people's favorites. And Gus and Wally have a really rich interior life. And so we were like, what about just doing Mission Hill, but with more Gus and Wally? Like, rather than have, It'd be more. It's, so Kevin and Andy are going to be. Everyone's going to be in the show. The same exact yeah. composition of characters, but there will be about forty percent more Gus and Wally, as well as flashbacks, um, because what's going to happen is that since Gus and Wally have lived in Mission Hill since nineteen fifty eight, we're going to have some stories that are told in flashback, um, a la Plan Nine from, from Mission Hill, but stories that take place in Mission Hill in the sixties, seventies, and eighties involving Gus and Wally and their group of, and then we're going to have a group of friends that they had in the old days as well. Um, so there'll be more of that. And, uh, and the show also, I should say, this is not a modern, this show takes place six months after Mission Hill ended. So it's really 1999, 2000, and it will always be 1999, 2000. And thus this thing is a period piece, although it, Mission Hill is not a period piece. Gus and Wally is a period piece and that it takes place 20 years ago. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, even though this was, as you said, on the commentaries and interviews, like, you know, you were writing for, like, Gen Xers, because um, it's also been said, you know, you realize when you were on The Simpsons that there weren't really teens to early 20-year-olds on the show, with yeah. exception, like Otto and some of the bullies. Um, it still speaks, like, to, I think, a modern-day audience that Gen X and millennials, for all their differences, you know, are still having some of the same problems. I mean, I've always said, you know, if you take out some of the pop culture references that are specific to that era and you know, updated the technology like the computers this you, know, you wouldn't even have to change the scripts really so even yeah. though it's going to be 1999 it still 
seeing milk courage. Yes, I think that's the case, except for the technology, which will have to, which will remain 1999 technology. Like, for most, in most cases, with with the, with the exception of a few jokes like Beck wearing the Carrie Ponsu, m- most of Mission Hill we tried to not put in contemporary references so it wouldn't get dated. That's part of the thing on The Simpsons is that, that, that at least when we were there, I think Sam Simon had made a dictum not to do that either because he wanted the episodes to play rerun and rerun forever and not seem dated. So it, you didn't, you didn't, you went very lightly on contemporary references. Yeah. Well, and that's actually an interesting thing that I've noticed um, watching Simpsons as we got later. They're also trying to fudge the backstories of Homer and uh, Marge that. In oh yeah. Well, nobody expected the show to be on for that long. <laughs> now it's a seventies theme prom, I think. Is right. Well now, important. yeah, now Homer would be, had to have been born in 19, 19- 87 or something like that right so it, yes that and when we were writing it he was born in the 30s you know we were writing his we were writing homer as if he were our parents you know and so you know he was listening to little spanish flea his references were things like the records that they have in their house when john waters comes over you know are, are records that our parents had like the new christy minstrels and stuff so like yes homer started out as a guy who was born in the 1930s and is now a guy who was born in the late 1980s but I mean, no, that's because the show had the, yeah. who knew it was going to be the longest running TV show of all time? Nobody. Yeah, that's the crazy thing. Like every time I mentioned, like, oh, yeah, I am watching The Simpsons, my parents are like, that's still on. Because, you know, they remember, yeah. like, you know, they're around, like, your age or a little older. They're just like, they remember, it's like, that's the show, you know, like, when my sister and me came around, like, no, you're not allowed to watch The Simpsons. <laughs> you know, like, it's bad. You know, now it's like, yeah. That's how far society has declined. That the Simpsons made the Simpsons people were going bananas in 1989 when Bart had a shirt that you know when Bart said don't have a cowman to his teacher, or you know underachiever and proud of it. It was like people just couldn't believe it. And now like look at you know certain episodes of certain Fox shows that transcend the that are approximately ten thousand more times offensive than that. Yeah, I mean I'm. It's just amazing. Like I remember the one joke that like made my parents gasp was um, in the Herb Powell episode when Bart uses the word bastard and like has this bastard song. That yes, and, like that was horrifying for a child to say. And it's, like, well, pretty, you, know, you know, American society has <laughs> gotten a lot, um, a lot more tolerant of bad language and bad behavior in the past yeah. thirty years. Yeah, and well, then we see like ten years later, you know, you do the episode of um, Mission Hill where you know that's all about Kevin masturbating in a ba- public bathroom and like you know all the you like um and um all the like different terms you know, like so, you know, I know um the bullies are like saying he was spanking the monkey like everyone just keeps saying different things. Yeah, like, yeah. Know. Well, South Park really changed everything. Like when South Park debuted, what was that like? Must have been right around the same time as this, right? Like yeah, it, the, the floodgates were open. You know, in terms of stuff like that. The decline of Western civilization had just exactly. point. <laughs> Again, you know, like, I keep saying it, but it's like, you know, this show is just, like, great with everything you have in it like that. Like, it, you can bounce from, like, a really obscene joke about masturbation, obscene by 1999 standards, to just, like, very, like, well-written, well-thought-out, like, jokes. And it's like, you know, you talk about how dense the show is that you guys were creating, like, subway lines and different cigarette brands for yeah. be smoking and whatnot. You know, it's very different from, like you said, a joke-heavy, gag-heavy show like Family Guy. I think history has proven that Family Guy is a two trillion times more popular than Mission Hill, though. So, like, yeah. I think the public knows <laughs> – they know what the public wants. And that show is very, very funny um, as well. So, like, you know, this is a show – this is a, a little niche show that never really aspired to be anything other than, a, a, you know, a cult show. 
Yeah, and yeah, no disrespect to Family Guy or any of the other shows. It's just it's, that's what I think makes this show so unique. It's just like you can watch it at you know eight when you know I was first watching it, or watch it in your thirties and you know get two different things from it. You know, the Kafka ass joke hits a lot harder now in my late twenties than it did as a kid. This is also one of those rare experiences where the network did not intrude upon the show in order. I mean, and maybe. Uh, they wanted to, but they didn't. Like the reason we were able to do this stuff is that the network trusted us and they weren't giving us notes on things like Kafkaesque or whatever. They weren't like, people aren't going to get this, which, um, you know, most shows have to endure that type of notes from the network. Yeah. And, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a real shame. Like I've said it before, I'm not just trying to like, I'm pressing you with it, but it's like, yeah, it's a real shame that this, this is like one of the shows where I'm like, God, I wish there was more. I've read the scripts. You listen to the, animatic and all that you know when i saw the um headline that about the gus and wally spinoff i'm like this is the best news i've heard in a very long time <laughs> i am excited for this is let's hope that. that somebody buys it um yeah. hopefully you know it's hbo max would be a good place for it yeah because uh, they own because time warner owns this property anyway so maybe we get the deluxe um home video set with all the original music intact and all that so that'll be great well that's actually what Part of the pack, should we sell this thing to a place, the pl whatever place buys it, we'll get the original episodes and we'll get the rights to the five episodes that we can also finish animating should they want to. We can we can finish those five uh, missing scripts. That'd be really cool to finally see those like and yeah. being done. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just a classic series and, you know, um, you know, I, and again, it's grounded, and I think a lot. It's probably the most um, outside, of maybe King of the Hill. Um, I think one of the more grounded shows. I mean, with the exception of you know the um, stories, you know, with Becca Michelle Butterfield, or you know, some of uh, you know, like Jim making um, the hot pants, uh, or well, I'm blanking on the name of them, like the the Carrie Pants too. Yeah, yeah. Like other than like some jokes like that, you know, like the show is pretty realistic. It's like okay, a guy like loses his job because his boss isn't paying taxes. That's not a plot right. that like a mr burns would do it would be something more fantastical than that and it's right. know, just very grounded and i think it's one of the most unique shows especially for back then but still like a very unique animated show so I highly recommend it to everyone thank you yeah so and then um pivoting a little bit just to some simpsons questions since i'm a huge simpsons nerd as are a lot of people on the internet seemingly um, yeah, you were an executive producer from 1995 through 1998. You had been there since 1993, so you were there for a good chunk of what fans have described as the golden age. How did that yeah. differ from the writing room for The Simpsons to later Mission Hill and other shows you've worked on as well? You know, it was pretty similar because we learned everything we ever knew from working on The Simpsons. Um, I, I would say that most of it was real. The room, the one difference is that the room on Mission Hill only really worked on stories. The room, and this, at The Simpsons, everything was done in the room. People would go out and write a first draft and then it'd come back to the room. Whereas at Mission Hill, the room mainly worked on coming up with the stories in and, and great detail. And then usually what would happen is Josh or I or one of our trusted co-EPs would rewrite the script uh, or we'd rewrite it, rewrite it as a group. And so we didn't have a room doing rewrites of scripts. Now, you've written, um, as we already mentioned, episodes like Marge and Chains and Marge Gets a Job, uh, but you also wrote fan favorites like 22 short films about Springfield. So what was the like process on an episode like that? Like, Was that a lot more difficult than your usual episode, or 
similar. No, I didn't write, to be clear, I only wrote one part of that, which is the steamed hams part. Superintendent, I hope you're ready for mouth-watering hamburgers. I thought we were having steamed clams. No, no, I said steamed hams. That's what I call hamburgers. You call hamburgers steamed hams? Yes, it's a regional dialect. Uh-huh. Uh, what region? Uh, upstate New York. Really? Well, I'm from Utica, and I've never heard anyone use the phrase steamed hams. Oh, not in Utica. No, it's an Albany expression. I see. Which is now the okay. meme, was the biggest meme of 2018. Um, that part, uh, that was a group effort. And it was entirely because uh, what the, I think one of the first weeks that we, had, we were there in season four, uh, this episode, The Front, came in really short, which is that one about Grandpa and the cartoons. So uh, we had to fill up. Uh, this Mike and Al did all this, Mike, Reese, and Al Jean. They had to come up with something that would fill up an extra 30 seconds. And they came up with that thing about the adventures of Ned Flanders, which is, you know, Ken's Love Bruce had a little theme song. And they did that joke about, like, it's church, it's Saturday. And we thought that was so amusing. Um, and because it was so corny, but it was so, and it had a little theme song and everything. And it was so delightful that we wanted to do that. Our episodes always came in so long, though, that we never had the opportunity to do that. So I, we came to the conclusion we're never going to get to do those funny little things unless we make a whole episode of them. <clears throat> and this was around the time that Pulp Fiction had come out and some other movies that were kind of like that. Uh, and so we were like, what if the whole episode is just nothing but those little Ned Flanders things, but they're all strung together with some sort of, you know, device. And Greg Daniels supervised, you know, basically everybody wrote the, everybody got to, we had a draft, you know, an NFL style draft where you get to pick the characters. Yeah, everyone got to pick the character they wanted to write for. I wanted to write for uh, for Skinner or Chalmers, really, but Skinner comes as part of the package because they're my favorite characters. And I love that routine they had where Skinner would make a mild lie and Chalmers would call him on it. And then it would go on, you know, usually he would drop it after that. So I wanted to do a thing with that where that went on and on and on and on. And um, I wrote that part. Everybody else, all the other writers, everybody got to write at least two segments of that. And then Greg kind of strung them all together. So that was very different than our normal process, yes. That's, again, a classic episode. Um, now, you obviously also did um, Who Shot Mr. Burns, so what was, you know, writing a mystery like that for a show that also never got really two-parters. I think they didn't do another two-parter for, like, another, like, almost 20 years. So what was that like? That was, it was a pretty hard to come up with the mystery um, and, and put all the elements in place. But it, it wasn't that much harder than writing a normal, writing a Simpsons episode is arduous. And so this wasn't that much harder. Like a lot of it, we kind of worked out in the room. And I should say, you know, this was Matt's idea. Like the, Matt, it was one of the, right before we had our story conference, Matt was like, came into our office and was like, we should do some sort of stunt like uh, who shot Mr. Burns. And we were like, hey, that's a great idea. Because who, you know, who shot JR had been on Dallas in 1980 and was the most popular TV event of the decade. And we were just like, that's a great idea. So we worked up a story. We took it to the writer's story conference. And Jim Brooks added his input and this, because Josh and I wanted it to be Barney. We wanted it to be Barney uh, because we were like, everybody was tired of getting Barney, which is why Barney became sober right at that time. We were like, the drunk thing is running, it's getting thin with Barney. So we were like, it should be Barney and he should be sent to prison for a couple of years. And then he comes back in season eight or season nine and he's reformed or a different person having been in prison all this time. And because we also wanted it to be, but I think Jim's instincts are always correct about this kind of thing. Uh, Jim, James L. Brooks said it should be a Simpson family member. And then and then it was like, wait a minute, like the best, obviously the funniest or most unexpected family member could possibly be would be Maggie. And so, but there was like, 
we didn't like that idea because we were like, it's, we were, we, we thought it was dumb because the baby didn't, how could the baby possibly do it? It would have to be a coincidence as opposed to a plot. And so David Merkin, who's a showrunner at the time said, well, what if she intended to do it? And then Josh and I were like, okay, that we like that. So then we went off and wrote it like that. Um, and you know, a lot of it is just setting up the red herrings in the script, which is like, obviously Homer has to be the number one suspect. Um, and that's easy to concoct. And we, so we just decided to use that thing about Burns forgetting his name as a catalyst for that. Then another, then other ones. And we decided, I think the key to this whole thing was when we decided that it was going to be the, the S the, every, every suspect had to have an S and M or W and S because the sundial when Burns falls in the sundial, he points to W and S and, or upside down M and S, which is Maggie Simpson. So, yes. uh, that's, that, when, when that came together, I think when that particular idea came, it all sort of fell into place. And I think the, like, the great thing about that those episodes are, even though it's been 20 plus years and like there's the definitive, yeah, it was Maggie. Like we, you know, we see the flashback, which we as the audience are supposed to take is the reality of what happened. You know, people still are trying to theorize. Like there's this um, YouTube channel called The Real Gems where he's done like 10 videos of who really shot Mr. Burns and he's like breaking down why no it's really lisa why no it's really bart it's like you guys oh wow so and yeah uh, he's like i don't know if you put that like a lot of it he's grasping at straws at sometimes with but other times like no you guys did put a lot of um red herrings and that could be believable and i think the most interesting one is that seemingly comes from an animation error that crusty, that the crusty one yes yeah. quick side note from the future since we kind of just jump right into the technical aspects of the theory rather than the theory itself but basically, people noticed at the end of the episode, Krusty the Clown appears next to Ned Flanders, and it doesn't look like your typical Krusty. It looks more like Homer when he was dressed up as Krusty for the episode Homie the Clown, which aired, coincidentally, a few episodes before in season six. You can notice slight differences between typical Krusty and Homer. This Krusty has the nose painted on, much like how Homer did, does not have the usual bags under the eyes, and the shape of the mouth is slightly different. On top of that, Krusty does appear mere moments before as part of a joke, not wearing his typical Krusty the Clown outfit. So this does lead to people believing the theory does have legs. That's of everything I've ever seen. That's the one that is like, wow, that really could be the case. And I only, we haven't been able to confirm this with whoever directed that episode. Was it Jeff Lynch or, or Mark Kirkland? That that was an error. And that what happened was that when that piece of animation came back, Homer was standing in the background and we were like, Homer can't be in the background. Otherwise that eliminates him as a suspect. Um, and so they were like, rather than draw in the crusty, they simply recolored the Homer to look like crusty, but that is the Homer. It's true. That's what Homer looks like in Homie the clown. Exactly. So, and, and it doesn't have, he has a different note. He has a couple different elements of his face. So whoever discovered that, that's the, I mean, I can tell you for certain we didn't intend for Krusty to shoot Mr. Burns. However, that's the most, that's the best clue that's ever been found. Yeah, it's very, I would love to know if that was, like you said, well, oh, he's not supposed to be there, quickly paint over it. Because as someone has also pointed out, when you watch the scene when they're all side-eyeing each other, he immediately side-eyes Flanders. And people wonder, like, was that, again, like an animation error where it's like, oh, well, Homer would obviously be suspicious of him. I mean it still works as Krusty would be suspicious of other people, but it's, um, it's great. And I think it shows, like you said, um, well, also the people didn't know you, sh you have to understand that the people who animated this didn't know who, who the 
culprit was either. It was a exactly. secret. And and only like four people knew. All the writers knew. And and, and Harry Shearer and David Silverman and I guess Mark Kirkland or Jeff Lynch who directed this episode. But the people who animated it didn't know. So they whoever put Homer in that scene at, probably was, just, like you said, legitimately was like, oh, Homer would be looking at Flanders. But unaware that Homer couldn't be in the scene yeah. for the reasons we had listed. Yeah, and again, you know, it just shows you that again, twenty something years later, that was, that was around like nineteen, well, six seasons, so that was like ninety six or so, correct? So, something like that, yes. Yeah, something like that. That's like you know, that long after, you know, people are still like looking, and you know, that's how dedicated the fans to these shows are. That you know, something as simple as that, you know, that a potential animation error is enough to like you know spur a lot of fans. Yeah, on. yeah, and, true. And you know, and I think it's like you said with mission hill like you get the cult fans going like you know people are very excited for this i know i'm very excited for the gus and wally spinoff to hopefully be bought i will you know subscribe to whatever app i need to to watch it good i'll buy that um the slutty shirt from amazon next so and by the way you should guys i don't know if you knew this but i am also people should watch close enough uh which i am the head writer and executive producer of for uh, the next uh, the next season, which I um, that I, I worked I worked on a regular show back in its yeah. earliest days, uh, and I also worked on this show back before it even existed uh, in the earliest days of season one, and now I'm back for season three and maybe onward. Uh, as I mean, of course, and this is a different situation because the JG Crintel is the, obviously it's his creation and he's a genius and he takes yeah. the he runs everything. I'm running the writers. Um, again, check that out too. And um, if you want to get good fast food reviews, you know, follow Bill on um, Instagram. And yes, Twitter. that's my claim to fame these days. Uh, if you follow my Instagram, uh, you will get a virtually a daily update of something. You get videos every week or so, but also on my Instagram story, you know, the hundred, as perhaps you can see behind me here, many of the hundreds and hundreds of food items from around the world that, that I am sent and, and sample uh, and critique. And, you know, thank God there's a, not a McDonald's within close distance of me because, man, I what, you wouldn't ever see one of these videos. I'm like, should I click on it? Because I know I'm going to want to go to McDonald's right afterwards or yes. go to wherever else. Arby's fish sandwich. That's my new love. Fish sandwich. Not, not a huge fish fan, but anytime the chicken ones come out, I'm like, God damn, I want to go. To, like. There's a lot Popeyes of good chicken ones out now. these days. Yes. There's, Popeyes will never be beat. But McDonald's uh, new one is is a, is a good second place tie with Chick Fil A. There we go. Yeah. So, all right. Well, again, you know, thank you for coming on. This has been a um, great time. You know, hope to have you back on some other time to maybe commentate on another episode. That would be excellent. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been a pleasure.